You're listening to The Modern Conservative on iHeartRadio. Joining me on the program is Cam Murray, who is an economist and was recently a guest on Q&A. Cam, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Nick. Perhaps you could start by telling us what you were invited on Q&A for, and then we can talk about that experience. Yeah, great. So I guess it's quite interesting because my ex- economic expertise is in housing and superannuation and planning and and uh, COVID, I haven't really commented on much, but that's why I was called up for Q&A. They, I think, have been searching for someone to be a guest who's willing to talk in public and say, hang on, guys, do you know lockdowns aren't free? They come with health costs and we should add them up and consider them when we have our pandemic health response. And so I knew going in that this, you know, I I would be pitched against some, one of our new public health experts um, to to argue that case. And, and, uh, and I did, and that's the background. And very few people have been willing to stand up and say that in public, despite uh, what I now know is that, this is a very popular common sense view of how we should respond to a virus um, at a policy level, but very few people are willing to put their reputation on the line and say so in public because of this wave of censorship and sort of groupish thinking about what we should be doing. So I said... uh, the question came, are we, you know, are people being too complacent? We saw someone drive from Victoria to Queensland. Okay, we saw someone drive from Victoria to Queensland. Now, just put that in perspective. This happens all the time, every day. Totally normal part of human society. And uh, apparently that was an indication we've become complacent. So I said, you know what? We should be complacent. The fear and the media... Uh, misrepresenting the risks and our response has miscalculated the trade-off of risk of lives for lives and so we should question (laughs) what we've been told and we should make our own personal judgments of risk and apparently uh, that's not a view that uh, is the sort of approved ABC or mainstream media view yet and I say yet because Views that aren't accepted become accepted and everyone who said they were crazy a year later will say this is the obvious and correct thing and I thought this all along, right? And you will be... That's right. You can be correct at the wrong time. If you're the first person to be correct and the group is still believing something that's wrong, then, you know, you'll be abused and, um, you know, the Twitter trolls will go nuts. 12 months later, you could say it. And if the groups change their mind, they'll say, oh, yeah, but there's some reason. <laughs> you said it too early. The evidence wasn't there. It was irresponsible. So I've been saying it since the very start. And why have I said that? Well, you know, I studied a PhD for four years under an economist whose expertise, global expertise, is health and well-being and how we maximise it through public policy or, you know, through all types of... Uh, uh, interventions and organisations, and uh, and so I'd you know I'd been exposed to these debates before, and 
all the pandemic preparedness plans said, you know, don't close borders, don't lock down, social distancing is very difficult to enact. We don't know if mask wearing in public is effective or, you know, whether it backfires because people are handling masks all day. Um, and then we just flipped. We flipped the mass fear and panic and then saying the accepted medical wisdom became a taboo. And very few people are able to just, you know, keep on track <laughs> when when that happens. Uh, and I'm one of the few people that has. And you, I know you've, Gigi Foster is one, Paul Friders is one, and there's actually quite a few medical experts out there um, who who do have this view. But they're getting censored. People are digging up dirt on them to to discredit them. It doesn't matter if you're a Harvard epidemiologist, head of the department who for years has worked on these things. I know a lot of experts had written papers in the last decade before COVID saying, oh, you know, a lot of this non-pharmaceutical intervention or whatever, you know, social distancing, mask, behavioral change, you know, most of it probably doesn't work and we shouldn't do it. Quite a few of those people had said it initially, like in March last year, when China was doing it. And said, hey guys, we shouldn't look to this and think it's a good thing. We've studied this. But then once that wave of social change and media pressure came, they've all updated their beliefs somehow with no new scientific evidence. And apparently we're doing the right thing. So, you know, I predict in 12 months time, um, we will be counting the cost of lockdown and people will be asking questions. And what I've said is just the right thing, but at the wrong time in terms of uh, being accepted in the media. It's interesting because, as I said to Gigi, I don't have a PhD. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a scientist. But I also, from March of 2020, was completely against this, simply by what I thought was exercising my rational faculty, right? Lock down a society. There are going to be fewer general health checkups. You're going to stunt the economy at the very least. And the consequences down the track are going to be enormous. I don't understand how people didn't see that. I don't know either. Um, and, and, you know, it's pretty crazy that Gigi said, we're trading off lives for lives, and no one ac acknowledged that and said, oh, of course an economist would say it's about the economy. She's like, no, you know, the economy supports human lives. Hmm. <laughs> That's why countries like India, it's very important for them to develop rapidly because their life expectancy is 68 Right. If you want those extra years, they need to be investing at maximum speed in all those basic services, you know, clean food supply chains, dealing with urban waste, dealing with sewer, clean water, all these basic uh, investments for life. You stop that or delay it. And, you know, the calculation is pretty simple. And I, I, I wrote this on my blog. Each year, the life expectancy in India rises by about a quarter of a year. So every four years, the development of India is producing one extra year of life on average for 1.3 billion people. If you delay that one year because you've locked down or you've disrupted things, that's a quarter of 1.3 billion or 340 million life years just from India, just from delaying development. Like these are real people who are dying younger. In fact, they're already dying more than 10 years younger than the average COVID death. <laughs> and somehow we don't count them. Think about the, the vaccines, right? Um, we know that closing borders and locking down developed countries who make vaccines and distribute them globally, 
has delayed and disrupted the global childhood vaccine rollout. And estimates put it at one to two million additional deaths of kids under five globally in Africa and South Asia just from delayed basic vaccines. That's That's a huge cost. That's in life years, two million people under five, you know, they're going to live on average another 70 years or 60 years in their countries, that's a lot of life years, right? It's 120 million life years. It's more than the life years of those 80-year-olds who've died from COVID. Just that one thing. Now, I haven't even started adding up anything else. Just two things. One, India delaying progress. One, childhood vaccine rollout. And I'm already orders of magnitude more death globally than what COVID could have or would have done i mean assuming lockdowns actually work which is a different question entirely and that's why all the pandemic preparedness plans prior to covid said please don't do this (laughs) you know they they literally wrote if you start closing borders and stuff you'll disrupt medical supplies to hospitals and will make treatments more difficult on average you know this will have a cost of lives that's why we don't do that no one, no one has an interest in this anymore. And that's, that's what frustrates me is that you're supposed to be a health expert maximizing human lives and you don't even want to consider the fact that what you've done may have killed millions of children. You're not even trying. That's the, that's the puzzle to me. And, you know, you know, since epidemiologists are happy to have a, have a go at economists, let me just say... I spent four years being trained in how to lie with statistics. That's what an economics degree is. Okay? I know the nonsense that happens in these modeling exercises. And epi- yeah, I know my, my PhD supervisor, Paul, once said to me, if you, think, if you think things are bad in economics, just go elsewhere. Give me, an exa- give me an example of a couple of those ways in which you can lie through statistics. Oh, well, in, in a lot of these uh, modeling exercises, you have a lot of hidden assumptions, right? So... So, for example, when I ask, why are we vaccinating children? And, of course, the medical advice is not to vaccinate children because their risks are three to 7,000-fold lower of COVID. But if you have a model that doesn't partition off somehow or account for this variation in, in susceptibility, you're going to totally amplify the effect when you let this uh, virus propagate through your model. Um, and so that, that assumption alone might you know, blow you off by orders of magnitude. So someone who's done modeling exercises will know that, oh yeah, that's not just a small issue. That could just totally change the shape of what you're forecasting. And of course, you haven't accounted for it. So why should I, you know, trust you? And and if we reflect back 12 months, a lot of those sort of, you know, with and without masks, with and without lockdowns, modeling exercises have sort of proven to be pretty useless. One of the extraordinary things from Q&A from both your episode and Gigi's episode is the lack of ability for these people to even comprehend the notion of lives versus lives. So lives that are being lost right now potentially Mm -hmm. versus uh, unseen loss of lives in the future. It's almost as if they cannot comprehend that as a possibility and they don't factor it into anything that's that's a pretty standard way we do things. we count what we can see right that's uh, a very classic reaction and i think 
economists are one of the few social sciences where you're trained to look for these what we might call equilibrium effects, right? Things that propagate through and and the indirect effects, these unseen costs. And yeah, I, th I think it's partly because most people don't have a good idea of how health, how we get health, how we get life years. We get health and life years from investing in things and doing the economic activities we do, right? Um, that's why some countries have very low life expectancy and poor health because they don't have all that economic activity that we do. The agriculture, the refrigeration, the distribution, the, all those elements. That's, you know, one of the mysteries in, in economics is, is that you can do a lot of health interventions in poor countries and you don't actually often change um, life expectancy, but then you can do a lot of non-health economic interventions and you end up getting huge gains in life expectancy. You can, you can build a dam with a hydropower plant and that will give you way more life expectancy than distributing um, you know, some drugs to an area. So we know that life expectancy comes through this indirect accumulation of economic investments over time. And I think not many people have internalized that idea and the fact that it still applies everywhere, right? It's not, it's not that it just applies in certain countries. And even if it did, you wouldn't want to lock down and delay those countries getting those gains. So I think that's why it's, it's hard for people to see because it's even hard when you look at it to know the direct mechanism. It's very hard to tell a story that we built this dam, you got hydropower, therefore you could use you know, an electric appliance or an electric tool instead of a coal burner. And now that's increased the, you know, cardiovascular health of all these people in this village. And that's a very loose, difficult story. You can't write a headline about it. Of course, one person dies with COVID, beautiful headline. One person gets, gets COVID now. One person gets it and, you know... <sighs> then off the back of that, the, the political rewards right now off... Uh, reacting to these individual cases because this is quite extraordinary. Oh, look, so this is another frustration of mine is that, I'm going back to Q&A, everyone knew that there's this Biloela family that got deported and everyone knows that this is political theatre, we're spending millions locking them up for political gains. And so, you know, the political apparatus is willing to do that for political theatre, but they're not willing to do it for COVID. You think there's no sort of um, theatrics involved in this? Uh, somehow this is the exception to the rule where we're following the health advice. So I think that's uh, a little bit crazy. But the reason, I mean, the reason it's so hard to reverse lockdowns and reverse our closed borders is that it's politically popular. That's it. So if you look at Western Australia's election last year, biggest victory on record, Dan Andrews, despite being absent and having the worst lockdowns in the country, still the preferred Premier. Uh, Queensland and New South Wales, the opposition parties are just invisible. They, have, they, they can't say open the borders because someone's definitely going to die. And that's an impossible political hurdle to get past. 
Um, and I think also that because most people don't travel internationally, <laughs> a lot of people didn't like our huge migration program. And we've had this huge economic stimulus. People are thinking, well, actually, it's not too bad. That's the reaction I get now. Like, you're saying, you're saying the economic outcomes are bad, which, of course, I didn't say. But <laughs> uh, I'm saying, you know, we could have had the stimulus and not locked down and closed borders completely. And we would have had an even better economic outcome. Um, so I think most people like it how it is. Most people are rewarding the tough guy political stance and uh and the opposition parties have nothing to say and i think the the dilemma now is how do you ever open the borders how do you ever do it now that we're trained to panic at any single case i think that political power um is really because of the media suspending the public in in fear yep no, I, I don't know what we're going to do. It's a huge dilemma. The rest of the world is opening up. They've they've been sort of living with COVID, and I, you know, I put it to the epidemiologists on Q and A. You know what what's the plan? You keep saying go out and get vaccinated, but people getting vaccinated can still get it. There's still a risk. It's not hundred percent. We're not recommending it for children. So, like, what what is your plan? Children are 25% of the population, for starters. Um, and if we open up, someone's still going to get it. Is, if you're fine with that, why weren't you fine with it 12 months ago? So no one, no one has ever considered the end game. And I, I wrote about that straight away and said, look, this is not a plan. And I was, you know, I was not that upset with a temporary sort of, oh, we'll close the border... Yeah, we'll have a couple of lockdowns. The first month, you can understand a bit of panic. But once you've got all these sort of natural experiments of cruise ships and towns where the infections run riot through a very vulnerable population, you have a pretty good idea of what you're dealing with. There's not much new information there. So you can, you can be quite certain that's what we're dealing with. And off you go. So I, anyway, we, we'll find out. And... The, the thing that I'm um, sort of preparing for is what comes next because what we're, what we're going to end up seeing fairly soon is the mortality data for 2020 come out from most countries and we will have a huge debate about how much of excess mortality in 2020 was COVID, how much was lockdown... <laughs> How much did we get from, um, you know, there's are, there are sometimes short-term gains from this. For example, we know if you close a hospital, you can reduce deaths temporarily because all the things that go on at hospitals are risky and some people die. But we do it because the long-term effect is that we gain lives, right? So we're almost doing the reverse of that now. <laughs> We're saying, oh, let's close the hospital. Yay, look, all these people aren't getting surgery, so they're not dying in surgery. They were getting surgery because it's going to lengthen their life in the next year and the year after that, okay? And they're the unseen deaths that we need to focus on. And so when we get this data for 2020 and 2021 of global excess deaths in different countries and how many recorded COVID deaths there were, there's going to be gaps. And it might be millions of people.
who's going to know how much of that was from lockdowns, how much was from COVID, what other factors were at play. Of course, the stories are going to be, one, the gap is uncounted COVID deaths. Um, Two, the gap is um, other deaths, but it would have been worse if we didn't lock down. (laughs) And we're never going to have a clear story because history is written by the victors or the powerful right so this is going to be there's going to be a massive massive effort from strong lockdown countries to invest in writing a history that says excess deaths would have been larger without lockdowns and we saved the day and you know paint us in glory that's that's what's coming in my view And it's going to be off the back of more reports from the WHO confirming this, uh, organisations that have been wrong from the beginning that we continue to follow. Yeah, I I guess this deferring to authority and organisations is not something I am comfortable with in general. If you look at economic development and the guidelines from the UN and the WHO and all these international organizations, they are not what you do to develop your country. <laughs> Look at China. China is essentially the only place that has recently had, in the last four decades, massive economic development. And they ignored all the advice of international agencies to get that. All the countries that are towing the line and borrowing money from you know, the World Bank and this and that, they have not seen that. So the question is, well, you know, these international organizations are political organizations, right? They have no incentive to promote the truth. They have incentives to maintain the political order. So I don't know, maybe I'm too deep into the politics. You know, I I wrote the book Game of Mates about political favoritism and groups and how they operate. So I guess I've cleansed myself of this view that... um, there is some truth-seeking mechanism in in political organisations when the exact opposite is the case. So it's a hierarchy, hierarchy, and then adherence to the policy of that hierarchy. It's a it's a social order. It's a group structure. You've, you know, groups, human groups don't um, don't form because they're truth-seeking. They form because they share stories about how the world works. They they have like a common belief doesn't matter if it's right or wrong and it never matters um in fact the more wrong it is the better because saying it is a better signal when it's obviously wrong that you're loyal to the groom and i think that's what we saw with the who i mean this is from there this is shortly after the 76 day lockdown of wuhan which was the report of the who china joint mission on COVID, 16th of february 2020 In the face of a previously unknown virus, China has rolled out perhaps the most ambitious, agile and aggressive disease containment effort in history. The remarkable speed with which Chinese scientists and public health experts isolated the causative virus, established diagnostic tools and determined the transition parameters such as the route of speed and incubation period provided the vital evidence base for China's strategy, gaining invaluable time for the response and this document it's an extraordinary document you know it's got another point just briefly i'll read is achieving china's exceptional courage with an adherence to these containment measures i.e lockdown has only been possible 
due to the deep commitment of the Chinese people. Oh my God. Yeah, well, I mean. This is where we got our, this is where Australia and all the other UN member countries got their directives from. I've never seen a, a, a scientist who's drilling into the evidence write anything like about the courage of the people. It's just, what are the facts? Does it make sense? Does it fit the model? You know, yeah. it, I'm, that's cl- The language is extraordinary. I mean, the CCP obviously had an input into that. It's um... well, Tedros is Xi Jinping's man. I mean, when when Tedros was foreign minister for Ethiopia, he indebted Ethiopia thirty billion dollars to the Chinese Communist Party, and then all of a sudden he pops up as the the general of the WHO. Yeah, oh, like the frustrating thing is that it's totally normal. That's totally normal political operation, right? And and yet. Somehow, people who are otherwise interested in politics do not internalize that reality and still think, oh, no, this, this was an authoritative document or something. Yeah. Like, but you know about politics, right? Surely you're very interested. You watch a lot of politics and you follow the news. How have you not realized that's how things function? That's, that's a frustration of mine. Um, People are very happy to acknowledge superficially, oh, yeah, that's obvious, you know, I'm so smart, this is what happens. I'm like, okay, now now assume that you're, you are so smart and this is true. Now take this uh, into another domain and apply it. And they're like, oh, but it's scary to apply it there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, yeah. Are, you, are you trying to tell me that everything is politics, <laughs> that it's actually hard to uncover the truth and I can't just trust things and... Um, it's a scary thing and it, it, it casts you as an outsider. If you think about, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about my journey, is I've always been a bit of an outsider and been willing to say the obvious truth that's sitting you in the, staring you in the face. I remember working uh, in the government in the Queensland Competition Authority and we were meant to regulate the, the price of accessing the rail network to haul coal from mines to ports. And we're supposed to audit the rail company and make sure they're not preferencing their own company trains. And it turns out that that's not something you can actually do. And we have to just pretend that that's what we're doing. And we just get a consultant to pretend that that's what they've done. And I'm like, well, how did you actually do this? We just asked. I'm like, but that's not going to show us anything because no one's going to tell you they've done the wrong thing. So there's this great big charade of pretending We're doing what we're doing. And I'm the only one standing there saying, does anyone care that we are just pretending to do something that we know is impossible to do? Should we not be saying maybe we should change the structure so we don't have to rely on this impossible thing? No one cared. So anyway, I've been sort of pointing out the obvious for a long time. That's a good, sorry to interrupt, but that's a good example, I think, of what's going on right now is because no one's willing to say that we we perhaps got this wrong. And I think that we've dug such a deep hole now with our COVID policy. And because the speed, and I'll just read one more thing from this, the speed at which foreign governments were encouraged to act, right, um, in the face of all the alarming uh, media coverage of people collapsing on the street and Chinese doctors in hazmat suits, all that stuff, um, infographs of the disease spreading rapidly so much of the global community is not yet ready in mindset 
and materially to implement the measures that have been employed to contain COVID-19 in China. These are the only measures that are currently proven to interrupt or minimise transmission chains in humans. Fundamental to these measures is extreme proactive surveillance to immediately detect cases, very rapid diagnosis and immediate case isolation, rigorous tracking and quarantining of close contacts, and an exceptionally high degree of population understanding and acceptance of these measures. And finally, achieving the high quality of implementation needed to be successful with these measures requires an unusual and unprecedented speed of decision-making by top leaders. I don't think act. Yeah, look, you know, it's, it's tempting to say that, it's tempting to say that know western leaders were duped by this response in china but i actually think it's 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 really not that it's actually the community panicked and expected a response so the community could observe the media coverage right and there were people out on the street saying lock us down now you know lock us down you know um that's where i think the power is. I think a lot of leaders didn't want to. I know Trump definitely didn't want to, right? Uh, I don't think Scott Morrison wanted to, but um, yeah, the state state governments definitely responded to that pressure. So I think it actually came more from the people. You know, sometimes our politics is about popularity, right? Whether or not a seed was planted by China, I agree with you, and. It it is it is representative of of a public at least a broad um, population of the Western public that is um, concerned with self preservation, afraid to die, wanting to look after themselves, and not being able to look at this virus for what it is on paper. Yeah, so that's actually an interesting point, and I think. We're almost trained not to think about death for our whole lives until it creeps up on us. And we, that makes it very difficult for people to talk about um, public health policy in general. Unless you're trained in it and you're talking about, well, these are life years, these are, this is how we actually trade off death, right? Because we can't make everyone live forever. There are trade-offs. And... If you, people say, oh, you can't do that, well, yes, you can because you don't want to enact policies that inadvertently kill more people than they save just because you didn't try to assess it and you only cared about those seen lives, those direct lives versus those indirect ones. So that's why we do that. Lots of people do. It's totally standard uh, type of policy assessment. But we're, we're, trained, we're trained to ignore death. And, and one of the examples of that is this... Um, the you know people are dying in aged care homes. That was a headline. I'm like, do you know that's where we put people right before they die? No one actually said what proportion of deaths occur in aged homes because it's actually grown to be around 60% of all deaths every day of every year. That's what it is. And even higher in COVID, right? Uh, yeah, it would have been higher in COVID, but, you know, there's no context. No, that's there's no context. Everyone's like, well, but people are dying. I'm like, you know, 100% of people die. So it's clearly not about stopping death, right? You know, you've got you've to get over that hurdle. 
in your, there's a mental barrier there. Okay, we're all going to die. Okay, now let's dig in. Okay, what are we going to die from? Oh, I see. If you prevent me dying from something, I must die from something else. Well, that's, now we're getting somewhere. Okay, so you're telling me there's no such thing as saving a life. There's only extending lifespans. Oh, okay. So how old were COVID people? Oh, okay. So you're saying we can actually say that if we stop them dying, they're going to die from something else. How soon would that be? Oh, okay. So you can actually add this up if you try. But there's all these mental blocks in the way, right? And I've, I've you know, it's it's done my head in how many people who I, you know, are quite smart and switched on and interested in other sort of areas of public policy and other areas of science who have never got over that hurdle and have almost intentionally blocked themselves because fear fear of death there's a fear of death there's a oh you mean i'm gonna die you mean if i don't get COVID, i'm still gonna die oh okay i put my parents in aged care so that they die there oh yeah well i mean that's true but you don't want to think about it and you know we're humans i, I don't expect a lot from everybody i don't expect everybody to um, train their minds to think this way but i do expect um, people whose job it is to consider these things who apparently have been to university who apparently day-to-day deal with trading off lives for lives i mean there's reasons we don't do surgeries on old people there's reasons for a lot of what we do in health Um, and that that same logic applies more broadly so very early on, it became apparent to me that there was a much bigger problem in Western society when I began arguing early that you know this potentially could be a very dangerous idea to lock down our society. And the, the, resp- the typical response I would get from people, from politicians through to pharmacists through to friends, was, what if it's your parent? that dies okay so my answer was if 10,000 people if the lives of 10,000 people are are saved then as difficult as it is and as much as I love my parents it's a mature thing to do and a rational thing to do to accept the risk of that death it's the trolley argument right so it suggested to me that there's a very deep problem in our culture right now where i'd say that there's a lack of of deep spirituality in our culture that's making people obsess over their own lives and not accept the fact that people do die like you said yeah look i i don't know what it is i'll be honest i don't know because you don't you don't need a, a religious grounding you just need some kind of learned principle and you just need to be reflective to some degree um that life is risky and the the whole point is to make the most of it while you've got it right and appreciate it a lot of people you know they go through phases in their life where they reflect on that and they have a midlife crisis or they quit their job and they're like you know what i'm getting older i've got one shot to make the most of this it's like um and we and we've We've kind of missed that idea for sure. I would hate to be a kid who's just graduated school and had plans to see the world, expand my horizons, and essentially I can't even travel interstate. 
and I, every year I'm losing my chance. Imagine if the borders are closed for three years. 18 to 21, I've finished school. What am I doing? I've never even been to another state. <laughs> um, you know, that to me, I mean, those, those years are precious. When you're older, you, they're the memories that, that make life worthwhile. And billions of people <laughs> have missed that. Um, but in terms of the, what if it was your grandparent or parent? Um, there were 1,200 flu deaths a couple of years ago. And I didn't see one headline, not one, that said, you know what, people are going around killing people with the flu. That's um, unacceptable. Yet it happens every year. Like that is a thing that happens that is not news because it happens every year. It happens continuously all the time. And now we've taken something that happens all the time and somehow this um, fear campaign, we've... um, We've been totally unreasonable about how we respond to it. Imagine if they were, you know, well, another three people have died from the flu as the total rises to 18. Yeah, yeah. Or another 300 people have died from cancer this month in what authorities are calling the worst cancer month on record. Yeah, that's great. You should do the news. You've got to add to that is that... um, you know, epidemiologists, uh, you know, so-and-so, professor at somewhere, um, says we've got to be more vigilant um, and, you know, we should enact fines for people who spread the flu and kill people and travel interstate. We've got to crack down. Like, this is where we are. And you, and it, I just, I don't know. Uh, it's one of the things that if you're trying to understand the world, you know... This is totally normal stuff. I mean, not that... I mean, the virus is going to kill people, right? We have this... I don't know how to put it, but we have this, for some reason, belief that we can beat it. It's like a battle. Like, oh, somehow through our policy and our technology, we're going to... Uh, fight it and we must fight i'm like it's really quite narcissistic it's a, it's a yeah it's a weird thing i'm like but what if you know we can't what if it takes two years to get a vaccine what i mean what are you like we should we're gonna fight it we're gonna beat it we're gonna hammer this thing down they've been saying that for about 18 months and that's that's great that's great but i wouldn't want to go into a war with no with an against you know with an army one-tenth the size of the opposition or the enemy, right? And that's, I think, what we've done. We've gone in with tools. We don't even know if they work. Um, we don't care how many people we, you know, we kill on the way. I mean, it's a very much a similar logic to entering into a war, right? Yeah. You just justify the human sacrifice, tell stories, paint people in glory, um, the glorious Anastasia Palaszczuk has allowed us to cross the border. Um, the only different, the only point of difference I would note is the enemy. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's even better when it's not even a real person. Like you don't have to actually actively kill anyone; it's just inadvertently. The, yeah, exactly. And all, but also, the enemy has become people like us, the dissenters. 
well, people who are questioning that's things. True. Look, I think that's going to change. I think it will change, and I've noticed it changing. A lot of people, um, you know, you say, I'm very much the person that just gets the logic and goes, oh, actually, the whole thing is ridiculous. <laughs> and I follow the logic to its conclusion. I tell you my conclusion. But everyone else is five steps behind me and thinks I'm crazy. But by saying it, if other people then start saying step one and step two and step three and start moving the debate, then I feel like we will get to step five and realize. And you think we're seeing some I think of those we're steps? That. You know, Saul Eslake, um, independent economist from Tasmania, came out um, last week after my appearance and said, you know what, we don't. Um, we don't elect the government to take advice from experts. We elect them to balance up trade-offs and, and represent us, our broader interests. And, you know, that's sort of what I would see as step one, is softening people up to go, actually, there is a broader interest here, right? And I'm just way down the, the line on that. That's true, for example, in another area I study, superannuation, right? You can say, oh, actually, this is just... Uh, a tax break for the rich and the tax break costs more than the pension and then you go down the line and then where I am is like people should just take their money and spend it. We shouldn't even have the system. It's not doing anything. Now, I said that two years ago and now in those five steps behind me are the Grattan Institute, lots of different organizations and a few politicians have already caught up. So I'm... I think we'll see in COVID a similar thing um, happening. And especially if the borders are closed for another year, I think they actually see there being a bit of a political resolution here because, for example, universities are very reliant on their international students and they're quite politically influential. Um, and, and when I say this, you've got to remember, I'm not saying that politicians are following the medical advice and locking down. I'm saying they're choosing the medical advice that says lockdown because it's politically popular for them. So I think Saul Eslake's view of that is a little bit off when he says, I don't elect you to follow the medical advice at all costs. They're actually choosing medical advice as that's politically convenient um, because there's plenty of experts who still <laughs> are being silenced, but go to any university medical school in the world and you'll find them there's there's a lot of them um but we will get to that point and i think the resolution to close borders and lockdowns will be um through a vested interest group that um, has billions on the line <laughs> and will start seeding the debate in the media and softening up the public debate and softening up the people to accept it and highlighting all these downsides. And, you know, I'm, I don't have the resources to, you know, write every day about this and promote the issue in the media, but you take a dozen or 20 universities with billions on the line and they will invest in yes. changing the narrative. And that when that narrative changes, then the politicians, it gives them the political um, opportunity to save face and change direction while still saying they're the hero and everything they did was right. I think, yeah, the universities in particular who rely on foreign students will, will carve out that story for 
state and federal politicians to open up. That's how I see it unfolding. Yeah, and possibly within that as well might be um, the changing of guard with some of the state politicians. Not so much Queensland and WA as they're fairly locked in now, but I think Victoria will have an election coming up in the next six to 12 months. Yeah, I don't know. I guess Dan Andrews is still going to win that, in my view. He's still the preferred Premier. When he comes back heroically from his injury and Look, there's so much theatre. I don't know. I don't know what to think on that one. People will 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 inevitably have the say. People will be in a position where they can no longer operate their businesses. They can no longer see their dying relatives, and this is going to be enough for people to say that the trade-off just isn't there. Yeah, that's that's happening, and I think Victoria more than anywhere else, because in Queensland we can still travel within our state. Um, huge amount of stimulus coming through. Yeah, we're trading off traveling internationally for traveling locally. Um, so for most people, it's it, we're in this sort of sweet spot, actually, politically, um, which is a bit unfortunate. Um, yeah, um, we, we'll find out how it, how it unfolds politically. But just remember, it's going to unfold based on the stories we tell ourselves and, and the political opportunities that present themselves. It's not going to unfold because we got more better evidence about anything or more scientific evidence. Um, and, yeah, another bugbear, follow the science. You know, just just um, just block anyone who's onto that. You know, science is a battle of ideas and testing and proving each other wrong continuously. That's It's a powerful narrative, though. It's not so easy to block. I think it's going to get weaker as well. And, I mean, that's a bit scary too because... You know, in uncontroversial parts of science that aren't politically sensitive, yeah, we should maybe not follow the science but attend to it and get an interest in it and consider it. And I don't want to lose all that just because this one politicised area. Um, and, you know, the, the politics is fierce. Look at the lab leak theory, right? Totally reasonable thing to consider. I don't... And I, apparently it became a taboo to say that, you know, a coronavirus entering the human population in the neighbourhood of a coronavirus research lab might be a possibility. Totally taboo. <laughs> As if anyone who's worked in a lab or any organisation would know that, you know what, you'd think it's all clean as a whistle, but it's run by a bunch of humans. <laughs> Mistakes happen, things go wrong. It comes back down to the, the very closely guarded and controlled global narrative. The media, is the media, the self-censorship and the uh, actual censorship is actually another long-term concern. If you look at the power, so think about the tech companies, right? You've got Google, Facebook, Amazon, all these guys who've had their biggest profits ever, totally unexpected boost to their importance in politics and people's everyday lives. They have just become the most powerful group on earth. They were getting powerful and people were worried, right? Uh, all this antitrust discussion in the US about breaking up Google and Facebook. And now the whole world locked down or much of the world locked down intermittently for the last year and a half. They've become indispensable parts of everybody's lives. Record profits. They've become indispensable parts of the political machinery for getting messages out and communicating amongst people 
for um, opposition parties to form and discuss and promote themselves. So it's a very scary entrenchment of power in my view and their financial interests are clearly to maintain some kind of social distancing rules and that's a bit scary that they can censor scientists <laughs> uh, censor any dissenting voice so that we even get a more a stronger version of the we must social distance forever sooner or later it must be asked you know, was this just an incredible coincidence and a great windfall for these companies like Amazon, right? Did they just stumble across a great piece of luck, maybe? Or is there something more to this? I'm not suggesting there is, but I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I guess my view is that um, if you read my book, Game of Mates, you'll find that a lot of these sort of networks of elite power do start by accident, by coincidental uh, occasions where it's in their joint and individual interest to act a certain way and then everybody learns individually and jointly subconsciously that that really worked and so that behavior gets rewarded and that type of thing gets entrenched so that's how i see it unfolding it's not really i don't think there's been a board meeting that said we must censor this we need social distancing in the whole world for as long as possible i think it's just an emergent social phenomena of everybody's bias and subconscious because there's being there's rewards at every step of the way for acting like that um which makes it easier to implement rather than a group of people sitting around correct. a shadowy boardroom if this is organically correct. then it's 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 much easier yeah a lot of people think you need a conspiracy to to organize human groups but you often don't you just need um ongoing rewards for um, biasing uh, your behavior in a certain way and people just do it and they will con they'll tell stories why it's the logical and correct and that's what my expert advice was but that's just how we always do it <laughs> that's just natural human behavior and then now there's quite clearly a emergent order which is globalization and a lot of those stories people Many reasonable people want want globalization. They they think it's a good idea, and there are positives to it as well. But there are also negatives. Yeah. Well. Okay. Globalization is a tricky word because there's globalization in terms of global political organizations, the UN, the World Bank, the WHO, all those types of things, and then there's globalization of sort of ownership of capital in different countries and the concentration of ownership by you know the the wealthy nations owning much more capital in poorer nations. And then there's just trade, right? And I think people understand that trade's good. Um, but those political agendas and that, um, you know, cr that ownership of assets across borders is, I think, people justifiably are a bit more sensitive to it. Um, yeah, but all of those political organizations that... Um, emerge globally are also a little bit like that right they're emergent those involved get rewarded for acting a certain way etc etc so i don't know if you follow michael west's coverage of things but he's he's uh, got an article lately about the um, international dispute resolution um, sort of clauses in trade agreements where companies can sue countries who enact rules that might undermine the profits of that company operating in that country yeah that's i think 
people should be rightfully cautious? I mean, is that globalization or is that just political power? <laughs> I don't know. The textbooks sort of talk about trade and all this integration of um, production networks. You know, is actually suing national governments from companies located in other countries because they enacted, you know, product safety rules or minimum requirements. Um, is that actually a thing? <laughs> and I think people are rightfully worried. It's certainly not in good faith. No, exactly. I, I think uh, Michael West's uh, recent coverage uh, talks a little bit about the Philip Morris suing the Australian government about plain packaging of cigarettes. And I'm like, well, you know... We should have that debate within our borders, uh, within the people affected by it. And if we want it, we should just do it. If it doesn't work, fine. Okay, um, I don't have a strong view about plain packaging, but I do have a strong view about Philip Morris being able to sue the government um, if we collectively vote a government that enacts that sort of rule. Well, that's a difficult one to, to do because this is something that I made a small documentary, audio documentary on is... is the tobacco tax excise and essentially this was brought in by Kevin Rudd on the back of a UN policy which was that the most effective way to reduce cigarette smoking in the general population is to tax cigarettes at 75% above the recommended retail price and part of that was Kevin Rudd's plain packaging but of course once this investigation unfolds then the people that we find who are the most um, affected by not so much plain packaging but the tobacco excise itself um, are the poor the indigenous and the mentally ill these are people that are not going to quit smoking yeah no that's that's one of the huge issues with the uh, cigarette taxes and it's it's also okay well this is an interesting topic because i have done a bit of research on this and I, I did my master's degree in this rebound effect from regulations and human choices, right? So, for example, let's think about alcohol. You tax alcohol. So now it's quite expensive relative to soft drink. So that's a bit of an issue because everyone still wants something sweet and bubbly or tasty. But also what you find is that a lot of countries with high alcohol taxes have a lot of a binge drinking culture. And the rationale there is, why would you drink alcohol to not get drunk if you've got to pay so much? You know what I mean? You make it, So you don't drink wine at lunchtime. Like It's not a Mediterranean culture of integrating alcohol into your diet. It becomes a, well, this is kind of expensive. Uh, if I'm going to drink, there's no point not getting drunk because I'm paying for this. And so you have this sort of Scandinavian binge drinking culture where or well, the UK and Australia where alcohol is relatively expensive compared to your sort of two euro bottles of wine um, around the Mediterranean. So You see that obviously with the cigarettes between raising it from 35 to 40 or 45 to 50. There's very little drop-off if someone's going to pay. That's right. So, I, my, yeah, my view on the cigarettes is most of it's cultural change and not a lot of it is is um, the tax. And... You know, there is dimin obviously diminishing returns to this and there's obviously um, regressive elements. So the poor being taxed more through cigarettes. It's completely regressive. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one and I don't think we think clearly about it. I mean, the other issue is um, everyone keeps saying, oh, those smokers are a burden on the healthcare system. So let's get back to where we were before. Everybody dies. Okay, just remember, 
everybody dies. So if you don't die of lung cancer, you still have to die of something. The question for the healthcare system is, which is the cheaper way for everyone else for you to die? Now, there's quite a lot of research out there by the hard-nosed academics where rigorous debate is taking place, shielded from the politics of the situation that show because cigarette smokers die younger and quicker, their lifetime effect on the health system is lower, right? So you can, yeah, the easy way to think of this is you smoke your whole life, you live till you're 65, working, has no effect on your work output and your contribution to um, you know, society, and then you die. So you have missed all the health expenses from 65 to 80-something, what the typical life expectancy is, 16 years of the most expensive years of your life on the healthcare system. And so I think uh, the classic study, uh, you know, I've been looking into this since sort of 2005, and there's a classic Dutch study that says if no one smoked, we'd have to pay 5 to 12% more on healthcare each year because these people... Are- I quoted that in the report. Yeah. And, and one of the only politicians was David Lionhelm who stood up for this, And right? do you know what? This is like uncontroversial it is but because we've politically sold the anti-smoking campaign on you know it's not just you it's actually society you don't burden us with your health secondhand smoke well secondhand smoke i guess is a genuine concern i don't know i remember traveling in europe um, about 15 years ago and being wow actually going to pubs where everybody smoked and i just couldn't i couldn't function right (laughs) is there is there any quantifiable data though that suggests that yeah look it's hard to know because this is a bit like uh, urban air pollution right um it's one of those things that it's hard to quantify except indirectly and then um that's why i feel that a lot of this gets wrapped up in sophistry to sell the of course and the and the other obvious point is that the effect is orders of magnitude different from the person smoking from the person sitting in the pub for a few hours on friday night with some secondhand smoke like um you know, those orders of magnitude matter for policy. Yeah, it's a bit like the lives from COVID. How many are there? Is it 10,000 or 100,000? Because that matters. That matters a huge amount. Like something that's 10 times uh, more lives to save, we should invest, we, we can justify investing 10 times more in potential lives lost, you know, the risk. That and not just, sorry, and not just how many, but... Who who were these deaths? Yeah. Did they have uh, how many comorbidities? Did they have? Were they obese? Were they uh, gi- already was, given? And that brings us back to those life years left calculation, which everyone wants to avoid. So, for example, oh, that's an, another point you've got me onto. So, I think it was April last year, um, Paul Friders. So, my PhD supervisor, good mate, health world well-being and health expert economist. He um, he sort of. Back of the envelope added up, you know, what's the cost of human lives in life years from lockdowns versus potentially lost from COVID, given we know what the fatality rates are. And, uh, and he's like, well, it's orders of magnitude different, potentially a hundredfold or more. And, and because these unseen lives, they persist into the future, right? There's lives lost next year that are lost earlier than they would have otherwise been and the subsequent year and for the next decade right and so it'll be hard to see those but if you if you can sort of um, build up from first principles a a rough ballpark you get a hundred times the cost of lives from lockdown and then a group of economists in australia came out with their attempt to debunk this i don't know if you saw 
And they completely messed it up and they said, oh, well, you know, the life years saved are some enormous number of fatalities, much more than what we know is reasonable. And the value of a human life is 80 million or whatever their number is that we think a full lifetime is worth when, you know, we trade off these things in policy making. We have to have some kind of comparison unit, currency to say, well, if we spend 80 million saving this life, we could have saved more lives with this 80 million somewhere else. Or I think it's 20 million, whatever the number is. It's, not, it's relatively unimportant at the moment because you can use different types of comparisons. You can use dollars, life years, well-being years. Um, and they completely messed it up and said, oh, every life saved is a full lifetime, even though the average age is 80 and therefore it's only three to five life years left. And they had a bunch of other errors. And, of course, they never corrected it. And no one, you know, the fact that they were off by, you know, nearly a thousand times in their calculation by the time you add up these errors. And, and that brings us back to there's no incentive to actually do a cost-benefit analysis of this. And this is another frustration of mine. You want to do a, a rail overpass or build a new train line to the airport. <laughs> you are going to see a dozen cost-benefit analysis and it will take years. We'll argue about it. You want to enact the biggest economic policy since the Second World War <laughs> and you won't do any and you won't ever ask, ask questions. questions. And silence those who do. And silence anyone who's trying to attempt to say, is, is the cost worth it? Are we inadvertently killing more people than we're saving? Because that would be silly. You take anyone who says that, you say, you don't care about lives. How can you say that? It's almost like I've put all my money on red and someone's saying, are you sure you don't want to put maybe half of it on? No, it's all on red. Correct. I can't go back from that now. And you can use it all and say it was obviously right. Then you tell yourself a story why that was the right thing to do. That's the scary part. <laughs> so what we are seeing very much here is, is, is storytelling, right? Oh, yeah. That's how we, so human beings run on storytelling. So if you read Game of Mates, one of the four ingredients for having a human group, a functioning group that is loyal to each other and reciprocates and is you have shared myths and stories. And that's what we're seeing on a large scale here. We've, we need this shared story for people to rationalize and be comfortable with the way things are. Right, because if there's no shared story, people will be like, "Huh, that's kind of a bit weird. Why can't I go to my grandparents' funeral? Why can't I see them? There must be a good reason for this. Oh, that's right. Everyone's telling this story. That's a good story. That that satisfies my human brain, <laughs> in a way. The tropes in these stories uh, double down on, you know, well, if you don't go along with that, then we're not all in this together. Yeah, in a way. That's right. That's right. Are you part of the team? You've got, got to believe the story and you've got to retell the story to show me that you're part of the team and you'll feel part of the team and I'll reward you for it. That's exactly what's happening. And, um, you know, I didn't know going in to Q&A how much people are self-censoring and telling that story, which is another aspect of the whole thing. Um, the other panellists, Stan Grant, the producers, very different in private. If they had a conversation like this, you might get you know, you might get more out of them if that wasn't being recorded, <laughs> and you might find that 
when there's no incentive to tell that story and recite the mantra, you can actually have, reflect on this and go, actually, yeah, hmm, and potentially move your thinking on a little. So that's another scary element. But um, I'm really interested to see how the stories evolve in the next 12 months because most of the world's going to be completely open, um, completely moved on. Data will be on the table. Yeah, and Australia... We'll have to come up with a story about how we always had this end game in mind, which no one has ever said. And if you ask about it, no one wants to address it. You get a lot of avoiding the questions when you ask. I think in May last year, after Gigi was on uh, Q&A, I just I, I wrote, there is no end game. This is not a plan. <laughs> You know, it's imagine going to a sport and not actually having a plan for getting a try or scoring a basket or getting a goal. And it's just like, how, what are we going to do, coach? Just trust me. We're all in this together. I'm like, yeah, but, but how are we going to win? No, no, no. We're all in this together. Just trust me. I'm like, that's, that's not a plan. Australians have a, um, a global reputation of being laid back and very keen on their freedoms. But, you know, everyone who moves here realizes that the opposite is the case and we're very conformist and we won't get out on the street and protest things. We're just waiting to be told what to do and we're like, oh, yep, that's the policy. That's what I think. Let's get on with it, guys, which is great. I mean, it's very cohesive society considering how diverse we are, which is, you know, it's kind of a social magic potion in a way. That, But when it comes to issues like this, we need to get out on the street and we need to have these sort of tough discussions rather than just conform and follow the follow what we're told you know people telling us lock us down lock us down i'm like you can stay home if you want (laughs) it's not the government's role extreme hard paternalism like this is not ever going to be favorable and it's not the government's job to save your life to protect your life because i come from the left i would i would say i guess i've been i'm not politically aligned but I, I'm, I have a soft spot for good rules that get good outcomes and that we actually, oftentimes we just can't rely on people to, that the individual incentives conflict with the joint incentives. So it's particularly in environmental regulations, I'm like, you know, sometimes we actually have to make a rule and we do need a bit of paternalism. Um, but um, I've been surprised how broadly this has been accepted across the spectrum uh the one time where i think you know what that this is not the time this is not the the issue where we go all right let's suck it up for the greater good um this is the time where we should be questioning is this the greater good (laughs) or is this just you want to have newspaper headlines talking about covid cases for a long time and nothing else I haven't seen many cancer cases in the headlines. A lot of doctors reach out to me after Q&A and said, this is madness. My patients are just they're essentially dying, waiting for treatments. Um, and that's never made sense, obviously, to have minimized COVID cases as a policy objective or a public health objective. We must be in the maximizing overall health and well-being objective. <laughs> Otherwise, we could just euthanize people before they died of COVID, right? Like, I mean, if you don't want them to die of COVID, we have a solution for that. Quite clearly, 
that's not what you want. You want to maximize health and well-being. So, and it's weird that that's not something we can talk about right now. But I think it will. I really, you know, it's funny. Despite studying sort of politics and economics for a long time and and seeing the um, downsides of group behavior, I'm still pretty optimistic in the long run. I do feel like... um, one of, the, one of the good things is people forget and they change their mind and they don't even know they've done it. And we evolve these sort of social structures and these organizations over time. So I, I do feel like we'll get there. I just don't know how long it will take. Cam Murray, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me.